Well, what a delight to be with you. And uh, thanks for the introduction about manure. I, we were doing uh, Peterson's book, Tell It Slant, if you've read that, and we were using the parables. And, uh, of course, there's a story about manure around a fig tree to, to produce food. So that's where that came from. And, of course, they gave it to me. I could have chose any other of the parables or chapters, but they gave that one for me. Anyway, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. It's a delight. I have so much gratitude for this congregation over the years, and wow, 150 years. That's pretty cool, huh? Give yourselves a hand, I think. Just that's, That takes some courage and strength. And uh, you know, Kay asked me if I would just talk a little bit about my connection with uh, this church because she said a lot of people won't know you and a lot of people don't know who I am either. So when I did this video and I mentioned Kay, she said people don't know me either. So I'm, I'm going to test that out. How many of you know Kay Oatmans? See, Kay? Come on. Everybody knows you. Where are you? She's out running around. <laughs> oh, there she is. See, you, I knew you were. So I came to this church in 1873, just after. <laughs> I'm the oldest on the docket, right? So I do have some history since I've been here that long. Um, and, you know, first of all, uh, Kay called and asked if I would be willing to come and be a part of it. And because she knew a little bit about the context in which I was involved at Trinity, she asked if I would talk about diversity in the church. Um, she first asked the person who probably is, knows the most about diversity uh, to come and speak and was turned down. And then she asked the, probably the most popular one to come and speak and again was turned down. Um, and then she asked me, having turned her down two times before. You've heard that one, right? That's number 14 on my list. I promise it won't get any better. <laughs> Somebody yesterday said, I'm looking forward to you speaking. In fact, I'd rather... Eat, I'd rather uh, hear you speak than eat. You're that good. He says, because I've seen you eat. <laughs> oh, well, see, it does go down here for, from here. I want to just uh, quote a little scripture here from Psalm 139 and then tie it together, because Kay asked if I would, again, just give a little history of my time here, but also then a little bit of my journey from here, and again, it's just filled with gratitude for this place, and uh, this verse has always meant a lot to me. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. I was born with a club foot. There's a, there's a medical term for it that I can't pronounce. I, mean, I could, but it's, it's tilapis uh, pedid Varus or something like that. It's kind of a weird name, but Club Foot, there were about 50 of us in the club. No, I'm just <laughs> But uh, I'll tell you how that worked out for me. I uh, came to uh, the university as a junior. I transferred from a small college, uh, Presbyterian College in Kansas, where I um, met Sue, my wife, and then transferred here to Colorado University, where I had John's dad as one of my political science professors, 
along with a lot of other great professors, but I also was challenged in my faith. I had just made a commitment to follow Jesus my freshman year in college, caught by God's grace, and then was challenged by one of the professors here at CU about the validity of faith. So I didn't know what else to do, so I went seeking some answers, and I was living up on the hill, and I could see First Pres from that, my room where I was living. And so I walked down to the church, and I met with Dr. Mayo. And Dr. Mayo was helpful, and he said, you really need to go to the university class. And it was meeting in his office over here in the corner of the old building, and there were about seven of us. <laughs> that met together. So over that period of time, uh, I started to work with the high school kids. That spring, I went on a camp with high school kids and really enjoyed being a part of that. Arliss Orr was a, the Christian education director, and she was the one that kind of put it together and invited me to come. And I just had a great time putting on skits and well, then there was a staff shakeup. Dr. Mayo left, Arliss Orr left, Jim Christensen took over for a short time, and then he left. They were just kind of scrambling for what are we going to do for our kids. So they asked me if I would take over the junior high and high school program until I got drafted. Because <laughs> you know what was happening then. We were all on the block for being drafted. So I said, sure, sounds like fun. And I had arranged to have a little bit of a job, but the, the boss said uh, he, would, he was part of this church, and he said, yeah, I think you should do that. So I started doing that. I knew nothing about what I was doing, except I knew that I really loved kids. I knew that I like to have fun. I figured that the church needed to liven it up a bit for teenagers. So I just thought, let's do stuff that's fun, stuff that I like to do, like go skiing and go hiking and fishing and inner tubing and all that, and just invite some kids to go along. That was kind of it. And I also was grateful for Young Life as I talked to them about what it means to be in youth ministry. And uh, their whole thing was, hey, just go be with kids. And I, you know, thought Doug and Ethan's thing is, that hasn't changed. I mean, really, to connect with people, it's a matter of being in their territory. So I went over to Boulder High and out to Fairview and just hung out. It, it's pretty awkward, actually, <laughs> as an older guy just hanging around the halls. Can't do that these days, you know. So um, did that for a period of time, and then in November, I got the notice to go in for my physical. And uh, guess what? I flunked because of the club foot. Changed the direction of my life. So that verse, I watched your body being formed in secret place. There was something really deep about the recognition of that event and uh, the direction that my life was going to take. So I was here doing youth ministry, and I appreciated the parents who were willing to trust their children with me, which was probably not a good placement of trust, <laughs> some of the things that we did. By the way, John, I did know you and Rick and Addie, and one of the reasons that I left is because you were coming up into junior high. <laughs> I just wanted you to know that. I can see, I could see you guys coming up. And uh, Larry Ryder was telling me that uh, Rick had put his signature in almost all the hymnals here in the sanctuary, so... There may be still some around with his markings on the hymnals. 
anyway, and probably some of yours too. So we uh, got started and continued in youth ministry, and Dr. Erder came as our pastor, and um, he said, look, I need to figure some stuff out. Would you be willing to stay on for another three, three to six months until I figure out what kind of staff I want to put together? And in about three or four months, he called me and he says, would you just stay on for a while and we'll figure it out as we go. So eight years of ministry here at, at uh, Grace Commons. And during that time, some of you have heard people mention things like the club that got started. It wasn't named after the foot. <laughs> it was just a generic term, uh, salt and light, something fishy, um, summer camps and uh, snow camps. One of the fun things that we did was take a couple of weeks out of the summer and do long trips. Our first long trip was to Canada where we took a bus from Boulder Bus Company. Don James was the owner and member of this church, and so he put us together with a, a driver and a bus. After we got back, we would take often videos of what was going on on the bus and kids climbing over seats and all that kind of stuff. And I, I had asked uh, folks as they watched the movie um, what their favorite part was, and Don James said the bus was his favorite part, because it held up after all that. And we just had some great times. The first trip that we took, we would always read a book, and we read um, The Great Divorce on that first one because of the bus trip, you know, in that motif, in that story. So, I know it was just a great delight that you trusted me with your kids and an honor really to be a part of their lives. I always thought, wow, what a, what a great privilege of being a part of teenagers' lives and being able to share their lives together. And I was reminded of some of the wacky things we did. Uh, James Kneebone was reminding me of the haunted house that we put up on the second floor of the educational building and uh, some of the unseemly things that happened. In the, <laughs> just uh, probably shouldn't have done it. That's all there is. <laughs> and then uh, Margaret Kneebone reminded me of a movie that we made called Something Funny Happened on the Way to the Club, and we just had all the kids kind of involved in a movie, uh, and it was kind of sped up to look funny. And uh, I forget the name of that show that was in the 70s, uh, laugh, laugh in, thank you, I knew there were two words to it, so it was made kind of in that motif, and I also didn't do it alone, I had great help, and I want to just shout out to my brother-in-law Larry and sister-in-law Margaret, who, Larry was our music guy, and he would do a great job of leading music, and I always thought music like we did this morning is so much a part of what you do to create an atmosphere of acceptance and welcome and uh, an atmosphere of we're not all that is. There is uh, somebody else here with us in the midst of life. And Sam and Kay joined us on several of those mission trips to eastern Colorado, uh, to Burlington, where we served uh, migrant families. And uh, also, we had just tons of college students who would help with uh, the program as well, which I was grateful for because they brought a lot of energy and thoughtfulness to what it means to be a part of. And a lot of those continued to be in ministry uh, today. And uh, one I think of is Mark Buchanan, who is a Presbyterian pastor in L.A. for years now. He's a chaplain in a hospital. But Mark and Brian, his twin brother, were part of a summer program when I was here. And Mark led a church of um, African-American people, about 80%. And I thought, 
Kay should have asked him because he knows more about diversity than I do. But it was just a delight to know those guys and, and how much they participated in what we were doing. And also a shout out to my wife, Sue, who put up with a lot of nights gone. And uh, so just to do a real quick end of that story, because we had two small toddlers at the time and Sue needed more help at home, I decided to resign, and partly because John and Ricky were coming too. I uh, shifted to uh, work for Behavioral Research Institute led by Del Elliott and did a, work, a couple of years with him and then was called to consider being a part of First Pres Yakima in which uh, a friend of mine who was in Littleton asked if I would come and be on the staff. And uh, while I was here, due to the generosity of the session, I was able to get a master's degree in counseling psychology, which was a great help just because I was working with kids and families and it just made sense to have some tools. And uh, Terry Matthew was, uh, Mathers was, uh, was instrumental in just helping that happen, which I was grateful for. And this church, again, oh, I just owe a great gratitude for that. So because of that, he invited me to come to be the church counselor and to run small groups and put programs together to help the, help the congregation minister to one another. That was sort of the goal. Well, after I was there for 10 years, and Howard had left, a new pastor came and he said, you have to get ordained or get out of here. <laughs> and I was wrestling with whether to hang my shingle as a counselor or to continue in the church. And I decided that God had called me to the church. And uh, I loved God's people, I loved the church, and I wanted to s support that. And I felt like therapy had its limits. And... Uh, God did not. God's spirit did not have limits in terms of people coping with some of life's challenges. So I chose the parish as a place where people can be healed and made whole. And because I hadn't done seminary, I had to go off to seminary. Had to. I enjoyed going off. We went to Scotland for two years. And when I came back, I was invited to be a part of the staff at University Place Presbyterian Church in Tacoma. And while I was there 10 years, or 12 years, I had noticed a little church downtown. And this little church had people lined up on Friday afternoon for a meal and a clothing bank. And uh, I saw them lined up one day when I was on my way back from the hospital. And I thought, I want to be a part of something like that. We're kind of boots on the ground, serving people's specific needs. And sure enough, a few years later, after their pastor left to be the executive presbyter, they asked if I would come and be their pastor. And so we were there for 10 years uh, until I retired. <laughs> And then I did some other stuff along the way. But that's kind of um, a summary of kind of what brought me to then Kay asking me to talk a little bit about diversity. Because uh, Tacoma, especially in the hilltop, is a pretty di diverse place. And I don't know, uh, just the anniversary of a big shootout on the hilltop uh, between some army rangers and some gang members it's an anniversary of about 20 years ago, was in the paper recently. And so it was kind of a volatile, volatile place. But I was influenced by Ray Bakke uh, in Mission. And one of the things he criticized was that downtown churches, during difficult times, when things were changing, they left and went to the suburbs. And he said the church has to stay in it in the midst of it. And I agreed with that, and I thought, what a great opportunity to be in a church that's sort of downtown in the midst of it, and uh, modeling what it means to be 
a redemptive presence in the life of a community. So, uh, tr uh, Trinity is in the midst of a group of pretty diverse folk, really. It's about 51% white and about 10% African American, about 10% Latinx, and about 5 or 6% Asian, and about 2% um, Native American and other um, races. Uh, so it's a pretty diverse. And I've always thought, you got to be in the community in which you're ministering. So Sue and I moved from our suburb house to the hilltop uh, to be more in the midst of it. And our neighborhood at that time, and still somewhat is, it was pretty diverse ethnically and racially. So I think, okay, that's how I ended up down there. And you wanted me to say that. <laughs> so I just did. So Boulder's pretty different, isn't it, though? About 90% white, according to the latest Census Bureau. 5% Asian, 14% Latinx. And I was talking to Scott from Longmont, and Mark and Larry live in Longmont. And uh, he says it's about 25%. Latinx, and uh, so it depends on kind of where you are in this community. And I guess the question is, what do you think? <laughs> is, the, is the church supposed to reflect the community that it's in? Should it? Is that some sort of a call to the church to be reflective about that? I mean, look at us. <laughs> We're not too diverse, really, when you think about it. So is that something that we should be thoughtful about as the body of Christ? Is Jesus calling us to something different? And then, if so, what do we do about that? So I wanted to just uh, give you some images of um, some... I think I have this clicker, Joe. I don't know what to do with it, though. Oh, it's up there. Okay. So I just thought it would be fun for you to look at some images of diversity and then tell me what you see. So this one was just to kind of give you an overview of uh, what you see in that slide in terms of diversity. And then if I just hit this button, what happens? Nothing. <laughs> if I hit this other button... Point it that way. Press it again. Oh, there we go. Okay, so what do you see in this picture? What kind of diversity? Okay, you don't see anything. Okay. No. Gender, sexuality. Yeah, I think those are queer kids. What did you say? Yeah. People of color. Young people. Here's another image. Again, what do you see there? Age, diversity. Yeah, people of color. I hope I'm pointing this at the right direction. What diversity do you see here? Okay. You guys are good. What other diversity do you see here? One of the ones that um, struck me recently is that we have uh, three or four families that have children that are pretty severely disabled that come to Trinity. And so I see disability in this slide as well, and I think... How's the church ministering to those families who have children with severe disabilities? So one of our families who has just been really involved in the church has a, a severely disabled child who 
hydrocephalic and all the other kinds of things that go along with that, has seizures constantly, falls down, has to wear a helmet because he has numerous concussions. And uh, she, they bring him regularly to the church. Jacob comes with his helmet on, and he doesn't walk very well. And so often, one of his parents has to go with him. And he loves music. So if he was in here earlier with Joe or you, Jim, he would be up here next to you. And one of our leaders just gently invited him to come up on the platform, put her arm around him, and handed him a mic. And he just stood there with the mic, didn't do anything. But it just chokes me up every time I see it. And we have some families who saw that, who had a severely disabled child, and left the church because they knew they weren't accepted. That people looked at them funny because of this uh, outburst of whatever. You know how kids are that struggle with some of those learning disabilities and made it uncomfortable for other people. And so they made it pretty clear by their facial expressions that they weren't welcome. Well, then they found their way to Trinity and they have been impressed. Now, their son is an adult and lives in a group home presently, but just that atmosphere of welcome for them invited them to stay. So, again, that's a, another form of diversity to be sensitive to. What do you see in this slide? Yeah. Sort of an interest diversity. I mean, these young women are obviously involved in athletics and uh, what does the church have to offer them? Then I love this little picture of these little girls. And again, a pretty racially mixed group of kids, and I assume they're in church. Not sure about that, but that's what it looks like to me. And then here we are. Here's a picture of Grace Commons. I took that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, but again, here is a worshiping community that's pretty diverse, uh, both age, color. This is uh, in Boulder. Another kind of diversity is the homeless folks that hang around our churches. Uh, we all are aware of those people, right? And these, this was in Boulder Park right over here. I think it was from the Boulder camera. So what do you think? What do you, what do you think the church ought to be about? What, is there a group of people that you think Grace Commons need to be paying attention to out of some of those? One thing that's not up there that you can't really picture is the p political diversity um, that's uh, part of it, or economic diversity, which I think one of the struggles that we've had at Trinity is that kind of because we're Presbyterian and middle class, I don't think a lot of people feel comfortable. They, when they walk in, they know immediately whether or not they fit. And I'm not sure how to deal with that, really, because when I went to Trinity, we had this the outreach programs of a food bank a feeding program on Thursday and Friday. We tutored kids at the two schools, one of the Bryant Elementary School just down the street and across the street, the middle school. We were tutoring those kids as well. My hope was that those families from, those, from the school would, would be a part of Trinity and that the people that we were serving off the streets would feel welcome to come to Trinity. It hasn't happened, and I think it's maybe not just the racial 
inequities, but it's also economic. People know whether they're welcome or not in, the, in our midst, and they pick it up pretty quickly. So what do you think? Whereas Grace Commons need to pay attention, not that we have all the answers to make that happen, but a couple of ideas. Where's, where's uh, Grace Commons' challenge? Young people, did you say? Yes. Yeah, okay. An age, more age diversity. Look around the room. <laughs> I came in 1873, you know, so. <laughs> Any other ideas of what we ought to pay attention to? Be open to change. Ooh, tough one, isn't it? We don't like to change very much. Yes, Daryl. I'm a newcomer to Boulder, and I'm looking for a church that encompasses all kinds of people. Is this it? <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. How come? I don't know. That's a question I ask. Okay. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Daryl said he was looking for a church that was pretty diverse, and he hasn't found it yet, whether it's at this church or not. Is that fair? Did I say it correctly? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Sorry. Um, we try to be very open about having homeless people come into our, our coffee area and, you know, um, whether or not we really talk to them that much is another question. But we had, we've had issues with security and safety in our children's wing. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I think we've been there, but... Um, I think there were concerns about safety. So, yeah, it, it is. As a downtown church, there is some risk there. Absolutely. Always risk. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> uh, we would do, uh, you know, these camps or meal programs with our kids uh, here at Grace Commons. And one time I left spaghetti big box of spaghetti on top of the fridge in the kitchen, and I got chewed out by the women. You don't leave spaghetti on top of the fridge. <laughs> and, and I thought, really? Spaghetti on top of the fridge is more important than the kids being here? Uh, it kind of was my first thought, wow, maybe, and unless the kids kind of fall into place with what's ordinary, maybe they don't feel welcome here. Yes, sir. Joe's coming. I'm on my way. I'm taking notes. Sit tight, You're doing okay. You know, I do want to give credit to some of the folks here at the church. We do have a program, uh, Doorways, that reaches out to foreigners and teaches English to women. Uh, we also have a pretty good... Um, outreach to our homeless population through our Lambs Ministry and through our uh, Deacon's Closet. And if I were to look around the Boulder area to see where's our greatest ethnic diversity and actually age diversity as well, it's going to be that homeless community. It is our Boulder County Jail. It's our women's shelter. There's a number of places that we could be engaged to start to love on a diverse community and invite them into a, a worship community. Yeah. Thanks. I agree with you. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say um, we have a Spanish-speaking church that meets in our annex, and I've always felt funny about that. I just wish they would somehow integrate here or use this building instead of the annex is, is like a poor stepchild over there. So I, I, there's more Spanish-speaking people around than we know. <laughs> yeah. Larry and I were talking about that this morning, and 
building a relationship with that church. Yes, sir. I remember a time that we, uh, we lost several uh, people that, um, that committed suicide. Mm. And I started a, a mental health um, class that Gary Johnson was facilitating. At that time, uh, I found we had a lot of people that were hurting. And I'm sure um, we could do that again. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been gone for 10 years. I'm licensed in, in mental health. Maybe it's one reason why I'm back. Yeah. Welcome back. I mean, I think one of the biggest characteristics of our community, at least here in Boulder, is that the vast majority of people here are unchurched. And I wonder how many of them would feel welcome coming here or would feel comfortable coming here and what we can do to, you know, make them feel more welcome and comfortable. Yes, absolutely. And just uh, piggybacking on your comment, one of the things that disturbs me is the number of queer kids who commit suicide because they don't feel accepted by their church or their parents or the community around them. That's disheartening to me. And uh, maybe it does take conversation around mental health that really would help those folks deal with it. We have a number of families who, at, at Trinity who have teenagers who are trying to make sense of their sexual identity. And I just feel like we need to have a conversation with all those parents. And they come from evangelical churches and they're struggling both with their faith and what their children are doing and how they're what they're thinking about and how they can help them through it. So, thank you. I would like to read, thanks Joe, I'd like to read a scripture that's related to what we're talking about and it's from Ephesians 2:13, and it's from the message. But don't take any of this for granted. It's only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. Don't you know the first thing about the way God works? Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ? You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. Hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ dying, death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together in this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people, separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through, the death, through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He created us as equals and so made us equals. Through him we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. The word of the Lord. So I think that speaks to what we're talking about in terms of diversity. And uh, I'd like to show you just a uh, an image. Paul is pretty clear here, isn't he, about the, the walls come down, that he's ended hostility through this radical event of Jesus' life, 
death and resurrection. Something has happened. There's no more us and them. Something else is going on. I know images don't necessarily always work, but they always have limitations when you try to put an image with something. But this is helpful to me. Um, one on the left side is the bounded set, which has lots of boundaries around it, those inside and those outside. And the one on the right is the centered set, which puts Jesus at the center and people with everybody. <laughs> All those slides that we saw are related to Jesus in one way or another, uh, whether they know it or not. And I like this because um, it helps me be less judgy <laughs> about what's going on. I'm not the big decider. Uh, Jesus Christ is the, the decider of what's going on in this. And also people, though, have some part to play in this. But you can see people are all over the place, but they're still in some ways related to Jesus in the midst of it. I, we have a family, uh, our son Ben, who was born here in Boulder, married Tammy, and they had an, one child, and then they adopted three kids from, one from Ukraine and two from Belarus, not related kids, but three children. And I just kind of got choked up when I thought about they, they really don't know what they were saved from because the percentage of suicides and drug addiction and prostitution of kids who are emancipated out of uh, orphanages in those places is 90, 95%. They don't have an idea of what they were saved from. And that's true of that centered set as well. We may not have a clue about what God has done for us, but in some ways we are still connected to the cosmic Jesus because he's at the center, the invisible expression of the invisible God in our presence, in our midst. And I think the church operates too much out of the bounded set rather than the centered set. I'd like to read just a couple of quotes, if you wouldn't mind, from this one is from uh, Dr. Richard Beck, who's a professor at Aberdeen, uh, Abilene, not Aberdeen, <laughs> Abilene Christian School. And if you've ever heard him speak, he's a great speaker, he wrote a book called um, God of the stranger. And here's what he says. We all think dark thoughts. The wall of hostility runs through every heart. I agree with that. We feel contempt for huge swaths of the world. We see news reports about people who vote differently from us, who have a different skin color than us, dress differently than us, worship different God than us, speak a different language than us. In them, I want to come back to that, listen to this, in them, our stranger God is seeking us. I think that's important to hear. In them, our stranger God is seeking us. But God cannot reach us through the walls of snobbery, superiority, scorn, contempt, and disdain that we erect between ourselves and the world. So this is where hospitality lives or dies. And then uh, this is uh, from Dr. Uh, Emerson, who Michael Emerson, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago. This is kind of sobering. White practicing Christians differed from Christians of other racial groups and from non-Christian whites whenever the topic was race. For example, while practicing Christians are twice as likely as other whites to say being white is important to them 
and twice as likely as other whites to say they feel the need to, to defend their race. Through extensive statistical analysis, we found that two-thirds of practicing white Christians are following, in effect, a religion of whiteness. They repeatedly practiced, I'm sorry, they repeatedly placed being white ahead of being Christian. The findings are not explained away by political affiliation, location, age, education, income, gender, or other factors. Wow. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? So as you look at the, the barriers that bounded set, I know Ethan and Doug talked about just how we greet people, and John reminded me too of Dr. Erder's comment about your face looks like you just had a jar of pickles. Or <laughs> yeah, that's right. And they said something about just being smiled. What, what could our responses be? I just want to mention some of them, and then you can, we can talk about them. I think the first thing is to be aware of our hidden biases. The thing that we may not even be aware of that's certainly part of how we operate. And uh, just words that we use sometimes to describe something or what we say to somebody makes a difference. And sometimes just to pay attention to what we're saying will clue us to what's underneath that. For example, you are a credit to your race. You've probably heard that. That is loaded to someone who is... Uh, person of color. Or, you know, I, I know lots of black people, so I'm not a racist. Really? <laughs> Maybe. Or you, uh, you speak so well. And we've all said those things. Or I had a friend who just said, you tried to Jew me down, didn't you? And I, I don't think it's necessarily being woke or trying to be PC. It's just a matter of being aware of those hidden biases and maybe cluing into those a little bit. Um, I, I recently was uh, at, a at a gathering in Tacoma with Sue. We went to kind of a spoken word um, poetry reading, and it was done mostly by uh, African-American poets. And there was a whole group of kids that had like T-shirts that said, push, push for your dreams. And I was curious about who they were and what they were doing. And I put off talking to any of them during the gathering. And as we were leaving, there were three young black men in a car getting ready to leave. And I thought, it's my last chance. So I approached the car with three young black men, and I thought, this is fraught with all kinds of intended and unintended innuendo. And just to say it went fine, but you could tell by the interaction that they were a little skeptical as I approached. Slowly rode down the, rolled down the window, and as I talked to them about what they were doing, the young man in the back seat rolled down his window eventually and chimed in, too, about what they were doing. And I was grateful for the interaction, but I thought just that unintended bias and assumptions on both parts makes a difference. So there was a woman who came to Trinity, an African-American woman, a lovely woman. She was new to Tacoma. She sat down in the worship, and somebody came up and either asked her or looked at her, her in such a way that you're in my seat. I couldn't believe it. So she got up, moved to another part of the church, and then never came back. I was grateful that she said something to me, but I had no idea that that would happen at Trinity. But it does. 
wonder how often it happens at Grace Commons where somebody comes in and you get the stink eye because you're in somebody's seat. So be aware of your biases and then decide on what's important to you as individuals and as a church. Is there a group of people that God's calling you to be a part of, to be uh, engaged with? I know uh, Larry and I were talking about the racial justice committee that you were trying to put together and eventually did, but it wasn't easy and there was a lot of conversation around that. I have a friend, uh, Dolphus Weary, who worked at Mendenhall Ministries. Some of you know Dolphus, and before he gives you a zinger, he does this chuckle. <laughs> and you know you're in for something. So I just want to chuckle for you guys in the, in the spirit of Dolphus Weary. <laughs> Are you serious that really you had a dust up over whether or not to have a conversation around race? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's definitely about relationship, having relationships in in those groups of people. Uh, recently, we had one of our guys who works at our Thursday night meal program come up and read the names of the people who come to the front door to receive a sandwich on Thursday night. We've been doing it outside since the pandemic, of course. We used to do it inside, but now we're doing it off the porch of the house next door. And what's happened is that those people have created a community. Some of those folks are homeless, and some of them are just struggling to find food. They live in a home nearby or an apartment. And some of them just come for the connection because they're lonely. And they have no one else to connect with. So he read the list of people, told just briefly about them, and then he said, they're a part of us. And I thought, he is so right. Just because they're not here in worship doesn't mean they're not a part of us. They're part of that centered set, though. And that represents, I think, like David was saying, more the kingdom than the bounded set. So I want to just show one other slide here. And then we're about done. I know sometimes people will say that and everybody goes, oh good, he's about done. And then they go on forever and ever. <laughs> I'll try not to do that. This is my friend Gary. And Gary, uh, we met Gary as he living in a garage behind us in our alley. And we struck, struck up a conversation and of course trying to be the goody two-shoes, I asked him how I could help him. He said, I lost my documentation. I don't have a social security card. I don't have a birth certificate. And you know that's a problem. And so it's probably been two years ago, I put him on a bus to go back to South Dakota. He's Lakota Sioux. And in order to get his papers, and we have to laugh every once in a while because he said, I should be asking you white people for your papers. I was here before you were. <laughs> and uh, I think he's right about that. But you know what a persona non grata you are without your identity. And he, my plan for him was to get his identity, get a job, get a place to live. He's still on the streets two years later. The thing that I'm so aware of in talking with Gary is the power difference, the white privilege in this. I think his life is so much more complicated than mine, and the things he has to deal with are so much tougher than mine. But right now he's living in a tent underneath the 11th Street Bridge. And he comes around just to check in every once in a while and he leaves some of his stuff in the pickup because he doesn't have any place to store it. 
But I just think he's part of that circle somewhere. He talks about his own faith. He talks about praying. And he does feel a little bit smacked by God because it seems like God has it in for him. That's kind of his, it's a little bit of a transactional thing. But trying to love him in the midst of that, but I'm very aware of the power differential. I think he's part of Trinity, whether he recognizes it or not, because of our relationship. I have a vision for what the church ought to be like. It ought to be multi-generational, multicolored, um, all different kinds of people like we looked at together. But that's my vision. It may not be God's. And I hope this doesn't sound like a negation of everything I've said so far. But uh, reading a book recently on uh, Eugene Peterson's life, he warned against visions that kind of get in the way of the people you already have, already in front of you. We don't have to look that far to already be engaged with the people that are around us. And another quote, I know you're going to think, he's so smart, he's got these quotes from people. It's not that case, not the case. But I love this quote from Life Together from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Every human wish, dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to the genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be so ever honest and earnest and sacrificial. Thank you very much. No, I'm not done yet. <laughs> no, no, you're not done. I wanted to tell one other story. You can. I was just going to open it up for some questions because you, you've got till 11. I got six, six minutes. Six minutes. I wanted to just tell one other story. Okay. And then... And then do you want to take a few Sure, I'd love to. Okay. In fact, Sue and I were having a conversation. One of those times when you're trying to make a decision about what you're going to do next... And uh, she said, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, I want to be one of those knockdown speakers, you know, that go to a conference, just wow people and all that kind of stuff. She said, I think you're better at answering questions. <laughs> so we should have gotten to that from, from the start, right? I just wanted to tell one other story about um, a man who came to Trinity while I was, well, actually, he came before I was there, and he struggled with mental health issues. He heard voices. Uh, cars and trucks spoke to him, and at one point told him to burn down his group home, which he tried to do. Nobody was hurt, but he got arrested, went in front of the court. The court realized he wasn't sort of capable mental health-wise to go to jail, so they sent him to Western State Hospital where he lived for years. And because we had a relationship with him through the church, some of our folks would go pick up Aaron, bring him to church, and then we would take him back to Western State after church. Sometimes we'd treat him to lunch and cigarettes and coffee. That's kind of what he wanted. Well, one day I was sitting in the front pew uh, at the end of my sermon, and he came and sat down to me while we were singing. And he said, may I speak to the congregation? And I, well, we're running a little late, Aaron. Could we do it next week? You know how that Presbyterian thing, get her done decently in an order? Forget about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> And I said, let's do it next week, Aaron. And he said, I just wanted to tell the people to trust God. And got up and walked out. And I thought, wow, I really missed an opportunity. For him to say that has a whole different impact than if I try to say it. 
So that's what I want to say to you is trust God with all your heart, mind, and spirit. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Amen and amen. Thanks. Thanks, John. Sorry. That's okay. Any, any quick questions? Good. No. <laughs> All right. In, um, in 15 minutes... Oh, we have one? Oh. Uh oh It's Donna. I know her. <laughs> I have one question about your church. Is your staff uh, diverse? At times. <laughs> Okay, I was just we, interested in whether, because this is the second city church we've been part of, and we have yet to see a staff that's diverse, and yeah. I'd like to have your thoughts on them. Yeah, we, we worked with AmeriCorps for several years because AmeriCorps helped us with our after-school programs. It was a great, great way for young people to serve. And most of those young people were people of color. And we were grateful for that. This last year, we had a young man who is an African-American who worked at uh, Hilltop Heritage. And so, yes, in the outreach programs, very much so. In the church, um, not so much. 